Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva Podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. Today's guest is Mary Hines. Mary is an Executive Managing Director of Life Sciences at Newmark. She is based in San Mateo, but generally works throughout the San Francisco Bay Area in life sciences. Mary has a wealth of experience in the life science area, and I know you're going to learn a lot from listening to the conversation. Enjoy. Hi, Joanne. So I'm Mary Hines, and I am a executive managing director at Newmark, and I have focused on life science for 22 years. I think I'm going. Oh my into- gosh. Yeah, it's been a long time that. That really dates me. A lot of changes during that time period too. (laughs) Lots of changes. And, um, you know, my, my focus is on life science companies and biotech companies, and uh, it runs the gamut. We, you know, are fortunate enough to work with a lot of startup companies and, you know, have a lot of great relationships with, you know, founders who go off and, you know, start other amazing new companies and um, to research new developments in, in, you know, whether it's cancer or neurological diseases. Um, So a lot of startup focus. And then we obviously grow with our companies and they get into that series C or they go into, you know, the public offering stage. And those are more of the middle-sized companies. And then um, we have, you know, some companies that we represent that are big pharma and have done so for, you know, many, many years, uh, representing one big pharma in, in locally in the Bay Area, which I have an NDA on and I can't disclose, but they've been a great client and we've, you know, obviously helped them with, you know, manufacturing, R&D and office, and that's all over the country. Mm-hmm. So you are though based in Silicon Valley, right? I am based in, yes, in Silicon Valley in the San Mateo Newmark office. Yeah. yeah. And for those folks who don't know, you described a little bit of your clients. So you typically represent tenants, right? So yes, 75% of my portfolio is tenants. And then okay. I represent 25% of life science landlords, um, right. like Alexander Real Estate, Charlton Properties, right. Biomed um, as well. Right. So for those folks who, who don't know, can you describe some of the unique space needs that a life science type tenant would have as opposed to your generic office user? Yeah, it's quite different. Um, I think, (laughs) so life science users uh, typically have a lot of R&D within their um, requirement. And so it's biology lab space, which they're working, you know, usually with tissue culture rooms and all of that has to do a lot with just the infrastructure of the building. So we need backup power. We need a heavier load uh, so that the floor plates can carry more weight for their equipment. Um, And so most of their labs are once through air. Um, And then for biology type labs, there's a lot of casework, a lot of plumbing. Um, For TC suites, there's, you know, a lot of different types of utilities that need to support it. So you need like CDA, you need um, usually a lot of backup power. Um, And so I, I think that, you know, from 
it sways very dramatically away from just like a standard office space. So I think, you know, standard office, like the most unique you get is maybe heavy power in your server rooms. Um, right. And, and so I supplemental think, HVAC maybe. That's right. That's right. And then there's chemistry. There's also vivarium use, which is, you know, um, work on animals. And so there's lots and lots of different um, specs as it relates to, you know, how what whatever science they're working on. Right. Exactly. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to condition of premises in a bit, but I always like to start out just by talking about sort of a little snapshot of pre-pandemic, pandemic, post-pandemic. Post and obviously retail and office, there was a very dramatic effect, but I think in life science, most of those companies were allowed to continue to operate during the pandemic. That's right. I would say that never been busier in my entire career than during the COVID like pandemic stage, right? right. So um, yes, a lot of our companies were growing and they were working. I don't think any of them ever shut down and they just got creative with their lab use and, you know, shifting, you know, um, creating shifts so that their employees, they could limit the, you know, the employees within the labs. Um, and then there was also a huge uptick in funding for life science real estate. So lots and lots of different landlords were trying to get into the space. And, you know, we have definitely um, had a huge emergence of new capital in this space and new landlords who are, you know, um, using this asset class and, and growing it. And so during that time, you kind of had a combination of both. Right. Um, and are you finding there's a little bit of an educational hurdle that those new landlords in the space have to overcome because they may not be so familiar with the specific needs of this particular tenant class? Definitely. Definitely. I think that um, there are some well-financed landlords out there who are, you know, trying to educate themselves and get it right because they know how important it is. I mean, like for right. office space, Okay. For office space, I mean, like if your offices are not built, you know, within the right square footage, you can always, you know, tear it down and rebuild that the worst case scenario for lab space, it's a lot of capital. And right. if you do it wrong, it really affects the science, right? So, right. Um, so I think that there are some, you know, new landlords who are taking that very seriously. I think that there's also some landlords who are like, hey, office is dead and trying to do everything I can to lease my space. And right. you can't just convert, you know, office space into lab space and just call it a day by right. changing the name of your brochure. Right. Right. So right. Um, you have a little bit of that. Um, but I think that, yeah, there's definitely an education process. And I think, you know, it's, it's a learning curve and it's a, it's a definitely a difficult barrier of entry to get into life science space. Right. 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 And for those landlords who are wanting to convert an office building to life science, obviously some of the challenges are that the landlord has to make a significant capital investment in the infrastructure of the building. That's As right. you were saying, the life science tenant is going to expect certain um, systems to be in place and they're not going to want to spend their money, which they're going to, we'll talk about TI allowance in a minute. They're going to spend a lot of money to create their labs, but they expect the building to have certain basic specs before they move in. That's right. Absolutely. And that, and that comes down to like even the general, you know, basics of, you know, making sure that you can bring chemicals into the building and how do you separate that from other users and, you know, and how do you separate contamination? Just certain, you know, certain elements cannot be, you know, you can't just carry it up the stairs and then just, you know, bring it into your lab space. And so there's just, there's a lot of operational stuff you have to learn. And then there's, and then how do you build around that? And that's the infrastructure cost. Right. So for any 
broker who's getting into this area, I think it's the same thing. There's a lot of education that you have to do and that you have obviously done in the 22 years you've been doing this, where you have to get up to speed on these particular tenants. And it must be a constant learning experience because each of these labs has its own little nuances. Right. And science is changing. And I think the bulk and, the, and, and, you know, the foundation of the lab space is, you know, the same, but science is evolving, you know, equipment is changing. There's some things that have gotten, uh, I would say, more building friendly. Like I think before NMRs were just, you know, a pain to get into the building, but now they're much more portable and you don't have to, you know, work as, you know, you don't have a huge workaround within your building to support an NMR. But I, I Can you think- spell that out for people who don't know? I, I, it's an equipment and I don't even know the specifics of it, but it's a okay. equipment that is used within, you know, um, within the lab buildings that right. tenants bring in. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, yeah, I think that there are, there's a lot of learning and I think, you know, I always play the long game, right? And so I, I think that real estate is a relationship game and it's not a game, but it's just a relationship building um, right. business. And, you know, you can do one transaction and, hopefully you do a great job. And as a broker, you want to do a great job so that your clients come back to you and they trust you and they know that you know what you're doing so that, you know, you grow with them when they're a series A or a seed company that, you know, when they grow to become a mid-sized company, or if they go public or have a great exit, that they follow you and that you're able to follow them to their next, um, to their next company. And I think that's where experience counts. I think you can, you can dabble in it. um, But I think that experience is what is going to, you know, be able to forge the long-term relationships. Right, right. So in office, we've seen, uh, obviously, especially in San Francisco, huge vacancy, and a lot of other major metropolitan areas, huge vacancy. Um, and, you know, that, that's causing a lot of pressure in terms of um, landlords trying to attract tenants. In life science, we're not seeing that so much. We're actually seeing that there's a huge demand and not as much supply. Are you seeing that or not so much? So I definitely don't think that the life science industry was hit as bad as the office for one of the main points that we just addressed, which is they were never shut down. Um, But I do think that, you know, capital, the capital markets have tightened and I think funding has gotten harder. And so raising capital is is a challenge for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a tech user or if you're a life science user. Uh, um, I think that both are being, being hit with the current market conditions. I think in the life science world, what we're tracking is, you know, subleases, and we're definitely seeing much more subleases come on the market. Um, and I think that that is going to be, you know, an indicator of how our market moves, because I think mm-hmm. subleases are just positioned differently, right? So you have companies who are struggling, and they really want to dispose of their their space, and um, it basically saturates our market and it creates more supply, right? And so, and we definitely see a demand, you know, slowdown. It's, you know, I think last year we're tracking, you know, 4 million users that were in the market looking for space. And I think it's it's less, it's it's definitely less than half of that today. Wow. Wow. So it has, it has definitely slowed down. Yeah. I think that you raise an interesting question because if you're a life science user, and you want to do a sublease, and I've been doing a couple of those in the past couple of months, Mm -hmm. there's some unique issues because um, more likely than not, your subtenant is not in the same specific life science branch that you are in, which means they have a different list of chemicals 
and processes right. that they want to bring into the premises. So you right. have this whole environmental assessment in terms of understanding what chemicals are they bringing in, and then you have to make sure the master landlord is going to be okay with that, and then you as the sub-landlord are suddenly in the landlord business. That's right. And you have to be monitoring these things that you've never had to worry about before. Right. So for a lot of tenants to be in the sub-landlord business is very challenging because they're not used to being a landlord at all. Your forte. No. And they don't want to do it, right? It's right. only because of certain conditions that put them in that situation. And, and coming from a sub-tenant perspective, I think, you know, when we evaluate sub-leases, a lot of times the tenants are subleasing because they're not in great financial strength, right? And so you really have to evaluate that risk. And is that space valuable enough for you that you can take on that risk? Um, so and the risk for people who may not understand it is that if the master tenant who's maybe not doing so well, and that's why they have to sublet, um, were to default under the master lease, the master landlord can then terminate. And if they do that, subtenant is have to, has to get out of the space right and their sublease goes away unless the master landlord agrees that they can stay in notwithstanding the termination of the master lease okay. and that's a big risk because most landlords will not give a non-disturbance that's right so you have to have sort of a lot of faith and do your due diligence in your sub landlord is this sub landlord going to be good because they still have to pay the full freight no doubt their rent is significantly higher than the sublease rent are they going to be good for it for the rest of the term of your sublease? That's correct. So it's a big risk for the tenant to take on. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and I think there's a lot of different evaluations each company will have to go through. But, you know, the best scenarios are if you get a strong sublandlord who is, you know, high credit and they just have too much space or they don't need it anymore, whatever it is, and they can provide much more, you know, better economic terms than a, on a direct basis. Those are the best scenarios. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, it sounds like, oh, life science, that seems like a very stable type of tenant. But these companies are developing new drugs, typically, new uh, procedures, new chemotherapies, whatever. And wow. they live and die by FDA approval. So even though they've done these series fundings and it seems like they're on track and whatever, at any moment that they need to go in front of the FDA, if they get shut down, that they can just die. And so that that is a volatility that I didn't appreciate until I'd been doing life science for a while and realized the impact that not getting FDA approval could have on a company. That's right. And it's a huge risk, right? I yeah. mean, for the company, for their investors. And, you know, I think that, you know, life science companies take on I, I, I think probably the most risk, right? Because you're working on science and you are going and living. By definition, you're well, experimenting. You're experimenting. That's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're changing your <laughs> hypothesis. You don't know. There's no guarantee that yeah. your hypothesis is going to work. That's right. And you have brilliant scientists behind it and they're they're trying to work through these milestones and these milestones get them additional financing to push that milestone to the next milestone. And you know, we all knock on wood and pray that they get that chance to get in front of the FDA, right? And, and it's all good. It's like, we're curing cancer. We're curing the side effects of this chemotherapy. We're curing this. We have a new surgical, you know, it's all like great and fantastic, but Absolutely. very no guarantee it's going to go it's through. Still, it's still science, right? And there's, it's, it's not like, um, I think, you know, from like, from a science perspective or from a technology perspective, I think it's much faster to come to market as a tech company. 
right? right. You form something, you have a product and have an app or whatever it is, and you get to push that to, to the market and you have your valuation and you're making money. Um, that's like a tech company's like life cycle. For a biotech company, you could be 10 years or 15 right. years. And Much longer and runway. And you don't have a product. You're pushing towards right. a product or a solution or a cure, but you're still, you're still, you know, cracking at it. So yeah, there's a lot of risk around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so going back to the condition of the premises, what are some of the initial things that um, you'll, when you're advising your tenant and you're looking at the building and you say, these are the things we want to make sure that would be in the landlord column of expense. And these are the things tenant that would be in your column. And hopefully we can get a nice big TI allowance to help, you know, your, your investment in that. Yeah. How, do you, how do you draw that line? I think, you know, if you're looking at, you know, existing lab space, you want to make sure that the existing infrastructure works and it works well, right, to support the lease term that you're signing on to. And so there's usually a lot of inspections that happen prior to lease execution. And there's always would that, that be prior to the letter of intent, or would you have like a period after the letter of intent yeah. while the lease is being negotiated? So typically we are doing everything in parallel. And so in the letter of intent, there's usually a grace period that is, you know, with that's built into the lease because some, some of the infrastructure you really don't know until you're actually using it and the equipment, the fume hoods, um, even the emergency generator, you can inspect it, but then like you could be operating it and then something happens, right? Because it's it's actually, you know, ro robust and running 24 seven, whatever it is. And so there's, you want to inspect it beforehand. A lot of the mechanical systems, just the, the, I think mechanical systems are the most, I think the biggest expense for these, these users. Right. Um, and it's also right now because the supply chain issues, like the longest lead item. So right. uh, you want to just make sure that, you know, that is working well and that it's well maintenance that you understand, you know, the log um, that the landlord has kept or the previous tenant has kept that it's, you know, maintained properly and that, you know, whatever repairs have been done is logged. So you understand what has, you know, been, been, you know, maintained throughout the, the term and just what the useful life of that equipment has been. Um, right. I think that's, that's one of the critical points. And then just and that people may not understand that for life science, if you have something that is required to be temperature controlled, obviously disaster, if your mechanical systems are not functioning and the temperature control goes away for any period of time, you've just ruined now a whole class of experiments, obviously right. very expensive and right. time consuming. So it's, it's not like, you know, a law firm where do we lose money if the power goes off when, you know, we literally could, if we literally could not work um, because there was no power? Well, yes, but um, with few exceptions, life would go on and we'd be able to make it up, you know, work that night or whatever. That's not the same with the life science. It's, it's right. mission critical to have these temperature controlled spaces if that's part of their process. Exactly. Exactly. So those those are the kind of key items that we want to check off and that we want to build some type of protection within the lease so that the tenant is able to work through kind of their daily operations and make sure that it is operating correctly, that there's a time period built into that. So if you're going into first gen space and you've 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 got in the letter of intent, landlord has to make sure the base building has all these things. What are you typically seeing in terms of the tenant allowance? amounts for a lab user. He's going to go in and he's going to build the lab from the ground up. 
Yeah. Um, well, that's kind of in flux right now. <laughs> but it's pretty high numbers, just so people are pretty aware. High numbers, and it depends on what kind of user you have. So, like, right. if you're a chemistry and bivariate user, it's it's a lot. It's, it could be greater than, you know, six or 700 bucks a square foot, depending how big that lab is. Right. And then if you're, you know, a typical biology user, I think it's like somewhere in the four to $500 a square foot. Landlords are, um, I think we all are. I think from a tenant perspective, from a landlord perspective, we're all struggling with the current inflation, supply chain, you know, construction costs. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the typical landlord allowances are in the 250 range. And then you get, you know, additional what they call an ATIA. And that, you know, usually is just additional funds the landlord is willing to give the tenant in the form of a loan, basically. Right. And the right. tenant pays like an interest amount to that, right. uh, which, you know, runs anywhere from 25 to 50 bucks a square foot. Uh, in addition to that, and then the tenants have to come out of pocket for whatever is remaining. So it's a significant, it's a significant contribution um, right. for, you know, first gen space. And I think that, you know, we're going to see probably a little bit of a stall on that as we look at what is coming available in the market. Like, I think that, you know, tenants are definitely life science users are always much more conservative because their money really has to last them a long time. Um, and so if they don't have to spend it on building out space, they won't. And so if there is second generation space that comes available, I think that that's going to go before. That would they be their preference. Mm -hmm. Just then, to retrofit something. Exactly. Yeah. Unless yeah. it's a company that, you know, is moving, you know, has really great positive data and they're moving into a stage where they really need to have, you know, very specifically designed lab space for them for their next stage. And they're able to take on that risk because of the milestones they've met. Right, right. So with that type of TI allowance, um, how then do you see that dovetailing with the amount of security deposit or letter of credit that the tenant is required to put up? This is very unique. Um, I think we just talked about how risky this business is and just what a labor of love this is for for most of these companies who and you know who take on this um this research and this path it's a high risk business and it's a high capital intensive contribution from the landlord's perspective um right. but from a you know because of how important cash is to life science companies it, like it, we're not seeing like one year security deposits it's typically you know i would say 2 to 3 months of rent as wow. a security deposit. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that's a big risk for the landlord that they're not at least getting a letter of credit equal to the TI allowance for even if it burns down after a couple of years. That's right. But that's, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. You really have to understand, you know, what you're building and what this use is from a landlord's perspective to kind yeah. of you know, I mean, that's a lot of education for the landlord because that that would not be typical like in your office or retail scenario. If you had the same numbers running, um, there would be an expectation that the letter of that it would be a letter of credit and it would be for a substantial amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like landlords in this arena have to understand that these tenants are not sitting on a big pile of cash that they can just segregate aside and let the landlord have a letter of credit for some period of time. That's right. That's right. Wow. 
That's interesting. Is that one of the more painful negotiation points at the letter of intent stage? Or if the landlord's in this, they know what's happening? I think that most landlords understand that, you know, they approach this more as a partnership view. They, you know, I think there are a few large landlords who have done this for many, many years and who have been kind of, you know, on the, at the forefront of leading this right. type of space. And they, they understand the business, they understand the science, and they know what kind of risk they're taking on. And I, I think that they view it as like more of a partnership, you know. Mm-hmm. They do, they do right by the tenant and that the tenant hopefully will grow within their portfolio as they grow. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of their view of it. Mm-hmm. So it's a much broader relationship that's right. um, analysis as opposed to getting hung up on the details of a security deposit in one particular lease. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. So when you're advising, especially your startup tenant companies in life science uh, at the letter of inspection, intent stage, are there particular things that you always like to go over in the letter of intent and say, um, you know, just realize this means this, or just watch out for this, or let's make sure this particular concept is included? Yeah. So I think, you know, restoration, is always a, a big one, right? So you go into the space, you make some changes, and then the landlord, especially if it's not a life science landlord or not a sophisticated landlord, they don't understand what you're doing. And um, that sometimes bites the tenant in the butt as they try to exit, right? They, they say, right. had no idea. I was like, I have to now. So, the, so for people who don't understand, the restoration obligation is at the end of the term, unless it's negotiated differently, the landlord is going to say, I want this space to look like it did when I gave it to you, tenant. In other words, before you put in all your fancy lab. So you, tenant, have to de- decommission, uh, take down all your stuff that you installed. And that could be extremely expensive. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of dollars expensive. It could also be time consuming. So that's another thing people don't take into account. You know, suppose that the time to take this stuff out is 90 days. Well, that means the tenant has to stop using the space 90 days. They're still paying rent, but they have to stop using the space 90 days before the lease expires. Well, that's not going to be acceptable to anybody um, on the tenant team. So there's a lot to take into account. But then on the landlord side, now you have this lab. And so what are the landlord concerns with, if the, if the landlord were to agree, okay, tenant, you can leave your lab there. Does that benefit the landlord? Can they turn around and lease it to someone else? Can it be used by, is it a value to the building? I think it really depends on what kind of lab it was built out, what kind of condition, how, you know, how, how well does a landlord understand this market and can they take on some of that risk? You know, as much as I think more and more landlords are more open to this risk given the office market. Um, But, you know, a lot of landlords in the past, if we had to do a deal within, you know, let's say a warehouse park or an R and D park, a lot of them were just afraid of the chemicals that were bringing in. Right. And and bring in, you know, tissue. They were just bringing in blood. They, of course there may be legal rules about that. Right. So a lot of things, another nuance of life science that a lot of people don't understand is the tenant will be required to satisfy certain local, you know, either city or county mm-hmm. rules about decommissioning the space and there'll have to be inspections, et cetera. So that also takes time at the end. That's and the landlord will require that in the lease that the tenant has fulfilled all those obligations in terms of de- properly and legally decommissioning the space. And 
I think most of them freak out if they think that there's some type of con contamination that's going on within right. their business park, right? And so right. I think from a landlord, that's that's it. That's one of the big concerns. And then the other concern is just what is this lab and you know, can I lease it and how do I lease it? And just understanding right. and familiarizing themselves now with an entirely new type of product. Um, so those right. are and sometimes at the letter of intent stage, what parties do if if the chemical use is, is that significant is they will both provide that there will be a baseline assessment done. And this will show what chemicals are present before the tenant comes in. And then they will have attached a list of their chemicals that they plan to use in the space. And therefore, you know, by definition, if on the exit assessment, environmental assessment, those chemicals are found, it must be this tenant, right? Because it wasn't present in the baseline. The tricky part of that, as I'm sure you've seen, is that that list of chemicals could be very proprietary, right? It's sort of like Coca-Cola, like they're not going to tell you their list of ingredients because then people can make Coca-Cola. It's the same idea in the life science. They can't have all the chemicals listed because then you'll know how they're making their secret formula to cure cancer or whatever. Most of the time, I think that, you know, if you're going to a, you know, very experienced life science landlord, it's not an issue. They know what they're right. doing. They, and they'll, you know, they'll treat it with confidentiality, but there, it, it isn't so difficult to kind of put to that list and, you know, work with your environmental, you know, health and safety team. But I think that, you know, you're right. It could get, it could get very tricky and it could get very complicated if it's with a landlord that doesn't, doesn't understand or hasn't been familiar with the process. Right, right. It, you know, chemicals, contamination seems very scary. And, you know, typically if they are, if the tenant is handling stuff, there there are various insurance products that the landlord can require the tenant to carry to sort of offset some of that worry about the risk. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Is there anything else that you're seeing in the market right now? Or now that we're at the beginning of 2023, you're looking ahead to 2023, any kind of uh, issues rising to the surface or concerns that you're seeing? Well, I think we touched on a little bit of just, you know, what is our sublease market going to look like and how does that affect the overall real estate for life science? Um, and I think that will most likely, you know, trickle down to landlords on a direct basis and just, it'll be interesting to see. And I, I know that there are experienced landlords who are, you know, thinking through this process and, and I'm sure they know where the market is could potentially and hit. I've seen some headlines. These are not clients. I mean, I've just seen headlines about various, you know, famous life science landlords who are maybe putting a hold on a new development or slowing things down because they're worried about having too much product come online at this particular moment. And right. so I definitely foresee that there's probably not going to be a lot of huge developments taking place in our near future. Um, but I also think that landlords are thinking about how to be creative and, you know, how to provide good quality lab space and continue their leasing to tenants in, you know, in the, in the face of this current market, you know, how do they get creative and how do they get in front of, you know, tenants given that there's going to be competition. And, you know, some of that competition, as we talked about is, not going to be as, you know, I would say um, as strong as going for a, for a tenant to go directly to a landlord. I think I would always advise a tenant to do a direct deal versus a sublease deal right. if the sublease is, you know, with a, a tenant that might be struggling. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, landlords know that and it would, they're probably thinking through how to creatively offer some type of product like that. Right. And are you seeing landlords give non-disturbance when you do subleases? 
So the only time I've seen landlords give non-disturbance is when I've brought a tenant that is stronger than the, the tenant existing tenant. They are leaving. Yeah, the, right. the existing tenant. Yeah, they are right. more than happy to do so. Um, but in other cases, no. They, it yeah. is very, very unlikely for them to do it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and, I, and I'm sort of surprised because I, you know, the landlords are so much wanting vacant uh, occupancy because of the high vacancy rate that I thought that the landlords would kind of be coming more and more over to the non-disturbance side of the fence. But I'm seeing landlords hold pretty firm on that, um, that, you know, they're just not giving it the subtenant. And it's hard when you're advising subtenants, like you're taking your chances here. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Now, hopefully our, the rental rate compensates for the risk, right? Because hopefully the rental rate is very good. Exactly. And I think, you know, some tenants are kind of thinking like, hey, this is so short term. And I understand this, you know, sub landlords business enough to know that they're going to be able to complete their obligation. And I'm willing to take a space for a short term basis. And I think in right. those situations, you know, they take on that risk, but the term is very, you know, very short. Right. One of the things I try to do with the letter of intent stage for a sublease is, get everybody to start thinking about how much time will it take the subtenant to get out. That's now, right. It's not that they're going to be able to kick out the master tenant in two days. I mean, that will take time. You will have a heads up, but at some moment you're going to get a notice saying leave. Um, right. And so I like to have something in the letter of intent and then in the sublease that basically the landlord will agree that the tenant subtenant has 30 days, 60 days, whatever period of time would be reasonable for that class of tenant subtenant to get out of the space. Right. Uh, so it's not like in the middle of the night, they get this notice and they have to be out in 24 hours because that would be a disaster for most companies. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, and that's at least something. Want to leave. I mean, you don't want this tenant to leave in 24 hours because they have to decommission their labs. Exactly, and like it would be physically impossible, but if, you know, basically what it says is the day the master lease terminates, the sublease terminates, which yes. means you're in holdover, which, right. you know, better to have some, Protection. You know, have anticipated a little bit. If this were to happen, landlord, you will be reasonable in working with us and a reasonable period for us to get out, we feel is X days. And exactly. you'll give us that. It's not non-disturbance. It's just sort of a reality of like how it's long right. it's going to take us to get out in a reasonable right. world. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, anything else you want to share about how it's going or no, we, <laughs> we hope that, you know, there's the JP Morgan conference is going on this week. So hopefully, you know, the, I would say the companies come out with a positive attitude, hopefully with what 2023 is going to bring. And um, that's it. I don't, okay. nothing else. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Mary, for taking the time to talk to me. Happy to, to be a part of it. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you. It was good to see you again. We haven't Likewise. spoken in so long. Oh, I know. Well, hopefully we'll see more of each other and that we'll do some deals together this year. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Take care, Joanne. Right. You Bye. too. Bye. I'm Joanne Woodsum. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, rate and review us, like and subscribe. You know the drill podcast is produced and edited by Matthew Salanoa. The Commercial Leasing Diva podcast is sponsored in part by Commercial Leasing Law Seminars. If you want to learn more about commercial leasing, and why wouldn't you, please check out my e-courses by visiting my website www.jleasinglaw.com. 
And right now we have three courses, two on the dreaded AIR lease form and drafting the addendum, and then a five-week course on commercial leasing basics, which takes a deep dive into letters of intent for commercial leases. Hope to see you in one of the classes. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.